welcome to our next episode here of That's So Second Millennium with uh, Paul Giesting. I'm Bill Schmidt, and I've been accompanying Paul uh, on not only our uh, full podcast series uh, journey, but also in what turned out in our last episode to be a very interesting, dramatic story of the early days of quantum physics uh, told through the lens of the philosophy of science. And so now we want to return, Paul, if, if you want to um, uh, these, uh, these dramatic days of uh, the early 1900s, pretty close to the end of the second millennium, but uh, uh, this, is, this is a turning point that's, that's very real for, for scientists where things were breaking down in the old paradigm. Uh, new discoveries had raised new questions and prompted new surprises. So take us, take us uh, along in the next phase of that journey, please. Yeah, um, so I had wound up last episode with the discussion of two of the classical experiments, observed phenomena that simply wouldn't fit into the classical paradigm of late 19th century physics with its, you know, with its deterministic understanding and its, its hard division of reality, physical reality into wave phenomena and particle phenomena. So, so the solution to those, and, and both of those had to do with light and the way that uh, matter interacts with light. So, but the solution to both of those problems, so one of them was the photoelectric effect, and ironically, Einstein is the one who published the answer to that one. And that's really ironic because as quantum physics developed, and in particular, the uncertainty principle and the Copenhagen interpretation of the uncertainty principle and the wave function and, and you know, what, what we now regard as basically the foundations of quantum physics, uh, Einstein was never happy about that because it discarded the deterministic, I mean, it, it dispenses, dispenses is a little too strong of a term. It proposes that the universe is, in fact, not deterministic. And Einstein is, you know, was, was never comfortable with that. But he is present at the beginning in his contribution to, in his early, you know, the early days of his career, so what could be, you know, working with this photoelectric effect. Um, well, in fact, I'm, that's putting the cart before the horse because the other one, the, the black body effect. So that's, that's tied to the name of Planck, who, you know, Planck's constant, fundamental constant in, uh, in basic quantum mechanics. And he was the one who proposed the solution to the question of why hot things glow and why they glow at a finite temperature. Although someone named Ween had proposed something similar a little bit before. Um, but both what both of them were proposing is that light travels in, you know, it, it's composed of packets. It must still have all the wave phenomena that we're used to, but it must somehow also be quantized. It must be, which just means that it's divided into little bits, quantum of, you know, how much. Right. So that's the, that's the origin of the word quantum. That's yeah, and that and it turns out to be fundamental to so there are no simply wave phenomena. Everything has a certain you know 
everything that transmits energy has a certain quantized size. So photons, of course, being the quanta of light and light energy. And interestingly, the size of the quantum is tied directly to the frequency or the wavelength, which is, you know, mathematically just one is just the inverse of the other, of the, of the light particle. If with that mathematical tool, instead of this curve that blows up at infinity so that you have more ultraviolet light and then you have even more x-rays and you have even more gamma rays and, you know, and the, and the curve just blows up and your object is emitting infinite energy, what happens is the curve turns around at a particular characteristic frequency and declines back to zero, which gives you <laughs> what we actually see. If you, say, measure the spectrum of the sun, you see that it's, uh, it peaks, its energy peaks near yellow, it has less red light, it has less blue light, it has even less, uh, relatively speaking, infra uh, infrared light, it emits even, you know, it, it, and also it emits less ultraviolet light, although it's still a significant amount. And so that curve reproduces reality. So it's our, it's our best hypothesis as to how reality actually behaves, is that, you know, Things, things at a certain temperature emit particles of a certain size. And because of this, breaking it into bits, the mathematics changes radically and becomes, you know, like reality. So Einstein then picks up this idea, which people were very ginger about to start with. They looked at it and said, oh, that, that's nice, your strange mathematical formalism that manages to reproduce the curve. Uh, I'm not sure that I, I well, you know, but... But am I going to discard this entire paradigm that existed at that point in favor of your one experimental result? Yeah. Well, probably not. <laughs> well, this Einstein guy comes along five years later. So this is, so Planck, I believe, publishes in 1900 and Einstein in 1905. So we would go back to the photoelectric effect. Why do, why do blue photons cause this metal to emit uh, electrons, but red photons do not. Well, if you accept this crazy quantum idea of Planck's, it's actually very simple. If energy is crashing into the metal in certain sized bits, clearly the electron just needs bits of a certain size. It interacts with one bit at a time, and if you get a photon with enough energy, it will kick the electron straight out of the metal. And if you don't, then no matter how many individual bits, apparently they don't add up, you can't add the bits together and activate a single electron with just a lot of small bits. You must have one large enough bit at a time in order to induce the photoelectric effect. So that's a second strange bit of information that started to make people wonder if things were really quite as simple as they thought. And there were, there were other things that, started, that people started to realize would fit into this paradigm. One of them is a phenomenon of spectral lines. So if you ever heard of the um, if you ever heard of the Fraunhofer lines, if you study the spectrum of the sun, which people people started to do very precisely in the mid 19th century, you'll see that there are these little black lines across the spectrum. So there's this continuous spectrum that happens to be from the black body radiation, actually, and then there are these little black lines here and there, just narrow narrow little lines. What on earth are yeah. those? Those are photons of a given energy that are being absorbed by atoms of a given structure 
somewhere between the hot layer of the sun and us. And you can flip okay. that around. So people had invented neon lights, and of course neon happens to be, be a particular element that's pretty well suited for this. But you could do this with almost any element. You could do it with sodium. We now have orange sodium vapor lamps more commonly mm -hmm. than we have neon lights. But nevertheless, the, uh, the physics is the same. If you take a spectrum of those lights, you'll just see a couple of bright emission lines. Mm. Not a whole continuous spectrum, because it's not really, what's going on is not really black body radiation. What happens is a sort of stimulated radiation from electrons falling from one well-defined energy state to another inside the atom. So this is another, another you know, broader, I mean, this, so this quantum paradigm went from a solution to a few strange problems it, to rapidly expanding to explain all of matter and all of energy, you know, at, at the microscopic level. Chemistry, you know, a great many problems that people may not even have realized they had in chemistry uh, are based on quantum physics. Why do elements combine in certain proportions? It turns out to be because of the energy levels of electrons in the outer shells of atoms. And, th and that those are, there are certain energy slots that electrons can simply fit in. And that right. gives you all the strange rules like why atoms prefer to have eight electrons in the outer shell, whether by electron exchange or electron sharing. Things that you may, Bill, you may have uh, learned in high school chemistry and then uh, gratefully forgotten and, uh, and not uh, gone back to all the way up until this point. I don't know. All right. That's the octet yeah. rules. <laughs> but, so that was, but that was hard. Um, that was sociologically very hard for people to deal with. And so there's a famous saying, and I forget whether it was Heisenberg or, or who exactly it was, but there is a fairly famous saying from that period of time that science progresses funeral by funeral. Oh, my. Uh -huh. Have you ever heard that saying? No, That's I funny. like it, though. That's true of a lot of things. The people who were born and bred and did their training in, you know, the 1880s were pretty hard to ever convince of the reality of this new way of looking at things. The people who adopted it were people who were graduate students while it was going on. Right. And, you know, they, they, looked, at, they looked at the world of their advisors. They looked at the world of what these crazy people were publishing you know, they're, they're contemporaries, they look back, they look forth, and they said, you know, I mean, as much as I respect this guy that I'm working for, you know, the, these new answers, you know, are just so powerful. And it was those people, you know, it, it, a lot of it went on by simply <laughs> the, people, the people in positions of influence retiring and dying, <laughs> being replaced yeah. by people who had, who had learned this new paradigm. But there had to be some people who believed enough in it to publish it in the first place. That can get, that can be overlooked. Interesting. Yeah. Very people do convert, so to speak, but um, but it's but it's also true that you know there's there's certain early adopters, and they capture the minds of the youth, and the old people die off. Uh, a new paradigm was definitely emerging in physics, but it couldn't be separated from 
the old paradigms of understanding particles as particles and waves as waves, uh, right. etc. That, that's the thing, is that we had this new framework, but then we took the pieces of the old paradigm, I mean, because all of those experiments that were conducted, you know, and, and verified the old paradigm. You have, to, you have to keep understanding those somehow. But in the structure of a scientific revolution, that can take time. And that's, that's something that I don't know that Kuhn really gave enough uh, credit for, is that you do go back and quarry the old results, so to speak, and bring them forward, reinterpret them, um, and recognize what was going right in the old paradigm so that so that we you know for example understand like you know the like the example I, I I think I mentioned it a couple podcasts ago and it was and it was something that was given to me when I was taking quantum physics of of a baseball right that you know a baseball is a, a a large composite particle and its position and momentum are uncertain but boy they're not very on the scale right. of on the scale of a baseball right they are. It, a few a few atom widths or something on either side of the baseball is not a very large uh, uncertainty on its position or or for that matter on its momentum. Yeah. So, um, what I was hoping you was know, talk about paradigms and paradigm shifts. Um, I was hoping to bring in, and I think we've almost uh, how long we've we been going about twenty minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About twenty minutes. Um, wanted to bring in the idea of religious conversion, so you know to bend it back, and you know I we promised that at the beginning of last episode, I think. Yeah. That you know, so picture yourself as someone you know in Corinth, let's say in you know 50 A.D. or whenever that was. This and this weird Jew comes to town, right? <laughs> he makes tents, and when he's not making tents, he's out in the in the agora, talking about this this freaky guy named Jesus who Paul seems to present as having risen from the dead. And you sort of tend to write him off as a flake until the day that you notice that, uh, you know, he he sees this guy begging by, you know, the pillar of the stoa over here. And, uh, and Paul reaches out and grabs him by the hand and picks the guy up. Now, you've seen this guy almost every day for 15 years. You know this guy can't right. walk. <laughs> right. All of a sudden, you have a you have a piece of experimental evidence that is no longer you know fitting tidily into your paradigm. Exactly, the paradigm has to shift. Yes, we can we can overestimate the degree to which science, as we now have it, is just something that humans never did before. You know, take your choice of Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, or Newton. Um, it's just brand new. Um, yeah. Which, first of all, you could make a strong argument is kind of racist. Second of all, uh, uh-huh. I don't really buy the idea that humans do brand fundamentally new thought processes that have never been had before. I, I'm, a, I'm a little more of the school of the guy who wrote Ecclesiastes that, you know, in some sense, it really has all been done. Even, even today, where we have all of these new, you know, technological gizmos and magic rectangles that tell us you know, what the temperature is going to be in five hours and, you know, and show us cat videos into the bargain. Um, true, those individual things weren't present, but the minds that we have to interact with them aren't that different. 
Yeah. So your reference to Ecclesiastes is that line, uh, uh, there is nothing new under the sun? Yeah, but there's nothing new under yeah. the sun. Yeah. But yeah, certainly, yeah. certainly not in the way that people interact with each other. Yeah. And that it's more a question of what we do with, you know, the the accumulated mass of insights that we have access to. And, of course, you know, as today we, we recognize the importance of information technology, some ages have lost sight somewhat of the fact that writing was a big shift, and then printing was an enormous shift, and printing was almost certainly the shift that allowed these same brains that we already had to work with to start building up, you know, a mass of insights and making them available to one another at enough of a rate to build up the edifice of science that we have. But that was yeah. a, you know, that it, that, it was, that it was really more of a technological, well, I mean, that that was at least key. And now it's not that people are thinking fundamentally differently than they did um, sort of on their own. It's, it's not a process of, you know, the, the great man emerges from the mist and, you know, gives us this brand new way of looking at things. Yeah. So that, yeah. so, you know, to bring it back to the question of religious conversion, you know, so there are at least, there are at least three reasons why you might, you know, if, if, if the person in our example might believe this Paul guy, right? So we, we've touched on one. If it's hard to believe that, Christianity got started as just a mass of people being hoodwinked by something or right. being deluded by some sort of mass uh, delusion. I mean, maybe the 12 apostles were so attached to this Jesus guy that they all simultaneously had this hallucination, multiple hallucinations, of him rising from the dead. Okay, maybe. But right. why were they so firmly attached to him to start with? Well, the testimony is that he was doing all these miracles. Why did anybody right. then believe these crazy apostles afterward? All mostly on the basis of them doing crazy things, like, again, you know, healing the sick, casting out demons, and raising the dead on occasion. Right. So that's one line of evidence. You know, the miraculous... <sighs> We, we have, you know, a tendency since the, since the 17th century for people to start, uh, you know, poo-pooing, well, you know, those were just nice stories that people told to each other, um, which, of course, you know, deserves C.S. Lewis's comment. If you were making a myth, you would not make the New Testament. There are way too many specific names and dates and places and all the rest of it for the New Testament to be you know, able to be shunted off into the same category as, you know, the labors of Hercules or the story of Osiris in Egyptian mythology or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. They're, it's too specific. It's too, it's too much of a report. It's, it's yeah. not a myth. It's a report. It may be a false like report, yeah. but it's a report. Right. Um, yeah. so, there's, so there's that line of it, but you know, and even you know, the thing, the other that, that but beside the people you know do have you know that are talking about that, I think they're giving too much credence. Perhaps they're leaning too hard on something that you do have to take into account, which is that 
it has to affect you and your life. It has to affect your mental and emotional world in a way that works somehow. Right, right. So the the Christian analog to science, so the story of science that uh, that we've been uh, telling here, is that God was saying in Jesus Christ, God is saying in Jesus Christ, hey, folks, here comes a big paradigm shift. Right. And things like Jesus' miracles reflect that. But God is also saying that, hey, take note of the continuity, right? Take care, mm-hmm. take note of the fact that Jesus is of the house of David and yeah. we have all the, the, the lineage uh, stories of, uh, you know, who begat whom. Yeah. And so it, it, so God is God is one who combines continuity and newness, just as Jesus said, uh, behold, I, I make something brand new here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's grafted onto that whole uh, Jewish root, which was, you know, pretty thick and deep at that point. And not only that, but it also, it took advantage of this fundamental overlap between the Jews and the world, that, the Hellenistic world that they inhabited, because there was this key link up between the Jewish idea of God and the sort of post-Socratic, well, I mean, you know, it, it, the pre-Socratics also had their own role to play in creating this philosophical, you know, world, but you know, the, the understanding of, you know, the, the Aristotelian understanding of God as, you know, there, there being a prime mover, not, you know, some big guy named Zeus who can throw thunderbolts around and tends to uh, wander around raping women because, right. he, because he's, you know, in that mood. But that's right. not God or God's mean. And that, you know, surprisingly well fitted with, the Jewish idea of the God who is, you know, present everywhere, sees everything, um, has, you know, and, and cannot be represented by any particular physical. I think, I think our sort of, you know, Renaissance tendency toward, you know, there's, there's this new dome, I think, on the, uh, the national, or the new mosaic on the underside of a dome at the uh, national uh, what is it called? Shrine of the. You've probably been there. I certainly haven't. Oh yes, yes. The National Shrine in D.C. Yeah. Is it dedicated to the Immaculate Conception? I can't remember exactly. I believe so. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but but it has another uh, one of these depictions of you know God the Father as this old guy in a chair. I'm like, that's not. <laughs> not to go all iconoclastic on you there, but that is dangerous. I think that does, you know, it's, then of course, you know, you have, what is it, Leonardo da Vinci, or is it, no, it's not Leonardo, it's Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel, right, of, mm-hmm. of God reaching mm-hmm. out, of, you know, a pretty Zeus-looking guy with wild gray hair reaching out and touching Adam's finger, right, which is, a, which is you know, a, an artwork, you know, I could not possibly wish that artwork out of existence, but it needs to be countermounted <laughs> with, 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 you know, leaning back on this understanding that God is not an old man in a chair somewhere. God is, you know, being itself present at every point in the universe, every point in space time, full force, 
uh, you know, truth itself. That's that's, yeah. a, that's a different concept, and and we need to remember to you know to draw back from these overly anthropomorphic ideas once in a while. Yeah, every, uh, every moment is new to God. Uh, uh, it, he's not just looking back wistfully like an old man in a in a rocking chair. No, no, he's present. It's the same God present at every point. Yeah, it's all new. It's all old. It's right. all, you know, simultaneous in a way. It's all laid out before him like a jigsaw puzzle that he can move pieces around however he wishes. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that, to, bring that, to bring it back to the question of paradigm, so those were elements that were yeah. already in that paradigm, you know, so this are, are, you know, moderately sophisticated Hellenistic, let's say, craftsmen. You know, maybe he, maybe he has a shop next to where uh, Paul has uh, taken up making these tents. Um, and he you was know, watching the guy with, you know, skepticism to start with. But he sees, you know, that what he's talking about can fit, you know, you know, that what, you know, my, this, this sophisticated understanding of God and being and the laws that govern the universe, you know, Plato's, you know, idea, I, I, uh, form of the good is another, you know, of these transcendent ideas of God that, uh, that, are, that are very present there. And that Christianity just provides you an additional additional set of insights, and you know, frankly, the experimental evidence is there if you trust you right. know, those accounts at all. That's which is the question: How would would people really just if if it just sounded nice, you know, people might adopt it on the level of sounding nice, but they wouldn't give their lives for it. Right. You need you know you need these multiple lines of you know evidence. It needs to fit into, it needs to make sense from a philosophical standpoint. It needs to make sense in the sense that things are actually happening visibly um, because of this. And it needs to do something to you. I mean, something has to happen inside of you for a religious conversion to really take hold. It can't just be yeah. an external intellectual exercise. Yeah. But that's not all that different. I mean, there there are points you can draw of parallel to between a religious conversion and a shift from one scientific paradigm to another. They're, they're not completely incommensurable, and they're certainly not inherently contradictory. Right, right. So I, I like this idea, this, this, this view of some powerful similarities between the story of uh, science that you've been telling and the, the Christian story as a... a this uh, wonderfully complex and yet remarkably simple, uh, well, I was going to use the word evolution here, but you tell me if that's right. But it was a kind <laughs> well, of, I mean, in a way right? it is, right? So we're yeah. talking about breakthroughs, right? So the, the, the one that I keep going back to is the appearance of the first, you know, multi-celled organism. That was a breakthrough, and there's, you're not going to go back from that. And, you know, a scientific paradigm shift is like that. It's a big step. And then you might have, you know, a lot of smaller steps. Once you come up with mammals, you then create different kinds of mammals. You know, different different ones come into being with that fill different specialized niches. <clears throat> but the overall, the beginning is with this, you know, big shift to oh, all of a sudden this thing has fur and regulates its own temperature and you know has live births and the whole package. Right. Yeah. Well, I like the way that 
uh, a lot of things have kind of come together here in in the story of how science and religion should not be in any way kept in their own separate silos ad infinitum. Uh, there's there's this similarity. There's this natural way of things developing, and indeed, it seems very much to be God's intent and God's modus operandi. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, if you if you accept the God hypothesis, then uh, there's certainly nothing that goes on without His, you know, consent, if not actual causation. Right. He's well aware, this, this God that's present at every point in space-time is well aware of, you know, all the consequences of the way he, uh, you know, laid our brains out, so to speak. Right. <laughs> well, with this kind of nice uh, coming together of a number of, of um, currents of thought that have been in our uh, episodes, um, it's, it, this is a, a nice breaking point, I think. Uh, because it's kind of a of a capstone, but still, obviously, in the spirit of our uh, central message of the podcast, uh, the, the milestones keep coming and the journey keeps going. And so maybe we could end this episode with the idea of, well, now that we've seen this similarity and this worldview uh, play out in both science and religion, how would you like to take the podcast from here in terms of examining the third millennium as part of God's pattern of ongoing change, but constancy at the same time? That's a good question. Uh, honestly, at the moment, I'm not sure uh, what direction to turn from here. Uh, we can go back to some of our uh, existing notes and uh, do some do some more thinking about that. Well, that's good to admit that uh, there's uh, there's still a sense of mystery and newness and surprise, just as the folks in the early 19th century world of science were were grasping. Uh, it, it comes bit by bit, and we kind of just have to go with the flow and ask the right questions and find the right answers and piece them together as it goes along. We'll do our best. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.